Theological education should be accessible. In the past, men have had to leave their local churches to train for the ministry. At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, you can now complete a seminary education while staying in your own church and being mentored by your own pastor. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org. You are listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. All right, welcome again to History of Preaching and Preachers, PT 15. We are at Lecture 15 tonight. This is our eighth class meeting, and Looking forward to talking about the United States, well, not the United States, but America in the 18th century and talking about the impact of preaching and preachers in that period of time. Before we jump into all of this material, let us ask the Lord to bless our time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for just all the ways in which you sovereignly and graciously worked in the history of our nation, Lord, to bring it about and to bless our country in so many ways. Father, we've been given a great stewardship, Lord, to take your gospel to the nations, not only to keep it here, but to spread it around the world. And Father, we pray that as we look back and see those who've gone before and those who have preached the gospel of your Son in this land for years ago, we pray, Father, that we will be stirred and prompted, Lord, to go uh, where it has not been preached, and share it, Father, faithfully and fervently and for your glory. I ask your blessings, Father, tonight on all those who are taking this class, and I pray your rich blessings on them and that this might be a fruitful time for us all. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, American preaching and preachers in the 18th century. Now, right up front, I'll say that the the, the dates there, uh, say about 1700 to about 1800 or about the you know, full scope of the 18th century, but really we're not even going to get up to the American Revolution. So we're not going to even get that far uh, because we have so much to talk about with the individuals that we're focusing on this evening. So that's just kind of the, the, the way it is. So much, again, is taking place in this uh, period of time, not only in the American continent, but also overseas. And we'll get to that in, in subsequent lectures. But we want to to try to stay in uh, one place for a couple of lectures at a time, so that's why we're staying in the um, in the colonies in the American continent for another lecture tonight. One thing I want to say up front that I need to correct was uh, in the previous lecture made reference to Increase Mather, not only serving as the pastor of his church for uh, just an enormity of years, but also uh, I cited from uh, Weber, Frederick Weber's book about him serving as Harvard president. Well, he didn't serve as Harvard's president for 53 years. I thought that was a little bit extreme when I read it, but I didn't delve into it on the spot, and I should have. Actually, he was only there about nine years as president from 1692 to 1701. So I wanted to make that correction. It is, it is taken verbatim out of Weber's book, so it's a complete misprint in the volume. So I hate that, but that's... that's uh, just one of those things. So let's talk about the history of 18th century America. As we left last time, we acknowledged that 
there was just largely a lot of apathy. There was a period of spiritual decline and laxity that had begun to sort of just slump over the land. And uh, a lot of that was connected with a decline in the fervency and the power of preaching in that period. Uh, we said last time the concluding years of the 17th century, the early years of the 18th century, about 1680 to 1720, thereabouts, saw a period of spiritual decline throughout much of the Western world. Of course, when I say the Western world, I mean, you know, Western Europe, Britain, all the way across the Atlantic, all the way over to us. Um, in Weber's book, which now, of course, we're all taking with increased grains of salt as we uh, look briefly at what he has to say about preaching in this era. He says, religious interest had declined steadily during the closing years of the 17th century and the first three decades of the 18th. This was by no means confined to America, for the same was true of England, Scotland, Wales, and continental Europe. In America, most of the great leaders were dead. John Davenport died in 1670, Roger Williams in 1683, John Eliot 1690, Increase Mather and Justice uh, Falconer in 1723. Cotton Mather died in 1728 and Solomon Stoddard in 1729. So uh, many of these uh, great leaders, great pastors, great preachers were beginning to die away. It's the same kind of thing I talked about with Benjamin Keach, who in the 1690s is lamenting in several of the things that he published that so many great men of the faith, so many uh, particular Baptists in London and others uh, were leaving this world for their eternal reward and and he was certainly missing them. Not, not that he was in any way sad that they were leaving the world, but he was sad that their influence was departing, sad that their leadership and their witness and their testimony was no longer available in, uh, in access to them. He goes on to say, A new generation had come upon the scene, and the great majority of them, those who succeeded, those who died, were men who lacked the emphatic religious zeal of their fathers. That zeal was often misdirected, but the founding fathers never allowed it to languish. So, uh, right up front in the 18th century, you're dealing with uh, just a period of apathy. There's a lot of just lethargic preaching, and, and so many of those who had led the way and, and were so stirring uh, in those earlier years have now become ineffective or often altogether silent. Remember that in New England, you've got, again, a Puritan environment, and down further south in the Virginia colony and, and around there, you had a, a predominantly Episcopal environment, and that has some bearing on how things began to take shape and evolve in the 18th century. Now, in New England, the halfway covenant had admitted to the church many whose membership was merely external. You may have studied that in, in your American history courses and so forth. That halfway covenant was, was a plague upon the church in so many ways because it was such a compromise, uh, trying to allow people to be part of the church and be recognized as such and receive the ordinances and all that, while just having a totally external uh, level of commitment, really no real commitment at all, certainly nothing that was life-altering and uh, glorifying to the Lord. So this covenant had admitted to the church many whose membership was merely external. It was a mark of good citizenship and moral character rather than spiritual rebirth. So it all was re reflected on the outside of things rather than on the inside. Another reason for the religious decline was a lack of evangelical preaching. Again, there was a lot of preaching, and there was a lot of preaching that might just really hammer the doctrine home. But as far as a, a preaching that was gospel-centered and preaching repentance and faith in Christ and so forth. That was far more rare than it had been in previous decades. Uh, 
By 1730, pulpit power was in retreat, and prominent religious leaders and preachers were in their graves. Jonathan Edwards, Gilbert Tennant, not William. William was, was the, his father, and William Jr. was his brother, but, but Gilbert was the most prominent of that Tennant family. These two and others were just beginning their careers as important and significant preachers in, a, in, in the colonies. The preachers and leaders in the churches largely failed to proclaim the gospel accurately and or forcefully enough as well. Often they were men of very minimal talents and abilities. A lot of them may have uh, not been able to get any training, not been able to get any you know, education and, and to further and foster their abilities. And so they just didn't have a lot of skill, a lot of prowess in the pulpit. Evangelical preaching gave way to sermons about elements of natural theology. So, again, leaving the gospel, talking about a lot of other uh, important things, but not as important, certainly not the most important thing, and that was the gospel of Christ. And even though some preachers did perceive the problem, they understood that there was a problem, they weren't immediately able to overcome it or do anything about it, hard as they might have tried. Simply laying out systematic theology does not usually result in repentance and conversion. It is one thing to know about God and another thing altogether to know God. Of course, we are aware of that, I believe, but we have to be sure that we remind ourselves that while our people do need to know about doctrine, they do need to know about biblical teachings and all that absolutely without question, they must certainly understand that there is only one way to know God in relationship, and that is through Jesus Christ. Religious duties were almost wholly external and perfunctory. Churchgoers believed their attendance was sufficient to satisfy any religious requirements. You find that today still, don't we? Just showing up, attending the service, listening to a sermon, uh, making your face, your presence known is, for some people in their minds at least, altogether satisfactory, and that's all they have to do. Uh, We've got to teach them that that is not the case. But then following a period of apathy and, and laxity and lethargy, there was a time of revival, a time uh, of new life, a time when that which, was, that which was originally alive was revived, revitalized, and re-energized. The evangelical revival of the 18th century, of course, is what we're talking about. It's called in England the Wesleyan Revival. And here in America, in the colonies, it was called the Great Awakening. And, of course, we'll talk about England in our next lecture. Um, Altogether different set of circumstances going on there. But, nevertheless, a lot of commonalities, as we've talked about. A lot of similar things happening here as we're happening there, and and just parallels back and forth. And so we'll we'll see uh, developments here as well as developments there taking place in a very similar fashion. Pietism in the European continent had some amount of influence, uh, both there and ultimately as it made its way here. It is customary to correlate the commencement of the Great Awakening with the ministry of Jonathan Edwards, almost universally. When you think great, the first Great Awakening or the Great Awakening, we think of Jonathan Edwards here in America. Uh, some uh, believe you could instead assign this pivotal position to someone like William Tennant, not Gilbert, or to Theodore Frelingeisen, but um, really it belongs to Jonathan Edwards. Um, the, they make the Tennant argument because they believe that what he was doing actually started earlier, even though it wasn't perhaps as widespread initially of, as, 
of a movement, and we'll see that in a second. Still, I believe that it's best to identify with Edwards uh, just because of his prominence. But as, as many commentators will tell you, they're all moving in the same direction. They're all going toward the same goal. They're all moving toward this revival that was orchestrated, we trust, by the Spirit of God. Now, Frelingheisen was a German pietist who, under the direction of the Dutch Reformed Church, came to America essentially as a missionary in 1720 at a particularly low ebb of colonial religious life. So again, he knew that um, there was an ebb, that there was an apathetic period uh, here in America, and he wanted to see what he could do to to help address that and and help to change that. Uh, Frelinghuysen worked hard and saw improvement in the standards of Christian conduct. Uh, Still, though, he's probably better recognized as a father of the Colonial Reformation rather than as that of the Great Awakening, father of the Great Awakening. Now, William Tennant, this is, again, Gilbert's father. Gilbert's the the best known of the Tennants, but this is his father. He was a Scotsman who constructed a log college in Pennsylvania, about 20 miles north of Philadelphia. This became a forerunner of Princeton University. And there in this log college, this just, just a, a basically a rectangular log room in this, in this structure, he taught his sons, Gilbert, best known of that family, William Jr., John, and Charles, as well as other, possibly including Samuel Davies. And again, this wasn't the only group that were educated there, but, but over the years, he edu- many were educated in this place. Others who were graduating from this course in this log college coming back to teach other subsequent generations of, of preachers and pastors. And again, as we said, this is a forerunner to Princeton. So Gilbert Tennant was born in Ireland, and we're going to talk just briefly about him because of his significance. Seeing only outward commitment among so many in his congregation, Tennant began to preach sin, repentance, and grace in a more intense and deliberate way. In other words, he was one of these preachers who was comfortable with sermons that were a little heavier on other doctrines, a little heavier on other matters. Again, not unimportant at all, but his people needed to hear the gospel. His people needed to hear the gospel and hear this message of repentance and and personal holiness and, and, and dealing with sin, mortifying it, putting it away. And so he... Uh, focused on those aspects in his sermons and saw some good results from that. He was something of a kindred spirit with George Whitfield, who became a very good friend of his. And in fact, when Whitfield was here on some of his uh, preaching uh, tours, you might say, um, Gilbert Tennant accompanied him and uh, supported him in those ministries. Now, Gilbert went on a preaching tour of his own in 1739 in New Jersey and Maryland, so that would have been terribly far from his home, and he was warmly received everywhere he went, and as he continued to preach his messages on sin, repentance, and grace. So he kept the same theme of his sermons as he preached and was well-received wherever he went. So that, that was an encouragement to him, that he was so warmly received, and they were glad to hear his messages, even though they weren't uh, elaborate and, again, highfalutin and, and, and filled with uh, all of these intellectual things or uh, deep doctrine and theology. They were glad to hear what he had to share with them. The people responded very positively. Many inquiries, in other words, those who were asking questions, those who were interested and curious about the state of their souls. They wanted to know more, and so they were following up uh, with these uh, many inquiries, perhaps many as, uh, as many as several thousand. Some see the Great Awakening 
uh, beginning in the middle colonies as many as eight years prior to the revival under Edwards and Northampton. This is for those who see people like the Tenants or even Frelingeisen uh, being uh, sort of a forerunner to, to Edwards and sort of jumping the gun on him and, and sort of taking the lead early on in the establishment of that Great Awakening movement. But again, it really doesn't matter because it's all moving in the same direction and toward the same goal. Parallel to the Great Awakening in America, similar movements had occurred in Wales and England and Scotland, all in those, uh, all in the first half of the 18th century there in the 1730s and 40s. George Whitfield, his preaching influence began in America in 1739, at the same time that the Whitfield Wesley Evangelical Awakening began in England. So, again, he came over here, and he was invited to come over here uh, by uh, Oglethorpe, and as, as well as the Wesleys, too, eventually. They didn't initially come at the same time, but then later they were here at the same time. But while they were here, you also had work happening across the pond in England and, and surrounding country, trying to uh, preach the gospel as much as could be done. Thus, within 12 years, a far-reaching renewal was appearing in four different countries. So you look at uh, Wales, England, Scotland, in other words, all of Britain, and then America, and you see you know, so much happening all of a sudden uh, together in these otherwise distant places, uh, clearly the work of the hand of God. Now, Whitfield visited America seven times, and I've listed those, uh, the dates of those seven visits there for you, uh, starting again in the late 1730s and going all the way up until his death in 1770. So he was here seven times, some of those, you know, lasting, you know, as much as four years, but most of them just lasting a couple of years at a time. Now, obviously, beyond these very few people that we're highlighting here, uh, we know that the Great Awakening in America was, in, you know, was contributed to by so many more than we're able to talk about in this particular context. So uh, we certainly don't want to make the mistake of thinking, well, it was just these people who were involved. No, absolutely not. Uh, there were so many people involved, some whom we'll never even know about, uh, who were very uh, important where they were doing faithfully what they had been called to do, even though they may not ever have their name acknowledged or recognized anywhere outside of what they were doing there. Now, Weber says the Great Awakening was not a revival in the modern sense of the term, nor did it in its earlier years exhibit the extravagances of the later camp meetings on the frontier. And that's absolutely true. Uh, the, the Great Awakening was, in many aspects, a very different kind of revival movement from what you have happening right around the turn of the 19th century with the Second Great Awakening, uh, as some call it. Uh, that was an altogether different movement. And again, if you know your American history, or at least your American religious history, you know that uh, so much of what happened in that early 19th century revival was so emotionally uh, centered and focused, uh, and it spurred and spawned just a whole host of aberrant, uh, erroneous um, groups and movements and so forth in those first 50 years of the 19th century. Just so many, many of them happening right here in our own state of Kentucky. Uh, just a, an enormous number of things taking place there in that time. Now, the Great Awakening was fairly conservative in its methods. Again, you don't have a lot of the 
huge emphasis or imbalanced emphasis on emotionalism and experience going on in the first Great Awakening. You see so much of that. In fact, it's almost exclusive in the second Great Awakening. You don't have a lot of doctrine and theology being preached. What you have is people seeking experiences, people seeking feelings and emotions and those kinds of sensations in the second Great Awakening. But here it's more about holiness. Here it's more about being right with God. Uh, so that's uh, a fundamental difference between these two movements. The Great Awakening period peaked between 1740 and 1742. And again, just keep in mind, you know, if you want you know, something to orient this around, just orient it around the American Revolution, you know, Declaration uh, of Independence and so forth. You know, think 1776, you know, we're, we're still about 30 years out. Uh, from that, but it's coming. It's out there on the horizon. Now, church attendance overall as a result of the Great Awakening increased by 25 to 50,000. Now, that doesn't sound like perhaps a lot of people, but when you consider that the colonial population at the time was only about 900,000 people, uh, again, that's an estimate. The first U.S. census was in 1790. So, so the es- that's an estimate because this was, again, 1740s. But Again, assuming it's relatively accurate, you know, this would about been about a little bit more than 10%, roughly, if that higher value is accurate, about 10% of the country, um, you know, began going back to church again, became involved in congregational activities again. Not everyone, of course, welcomed the Great Awakening. It's that way every time, isn't it? Some were very uncomfortable with the revivalistic features, uh, they, they liked things the way they were. They were very comfortable with things the way they were. They didn't, weren't really interested in uh, being revived or being revitalized, uh, con, you know, acknowledging, confessing, repenting, and forsaking sin, uh, seeking greater holiness, seeking greater faithfulness. It just really wasn't on uh, their agenda. Some opposed Whitfield because he was a clergyman of the Church of England. Uh, he was not popular with the Baptists, the Presbyterians, and the Congregationalists. Um, as much as we revere Whitfield now, at that time, you know, for those of us who are Baptist, he would have been viewed you know, with great skepticism. He would have been viewed with great concern coming over here and preaching what he was preaching uh, initially, and until we perhaps got to hear him and understand that he was simply trying to convey the gospel. He wasn't trying to necessarily attach particular denominational views to that or denominational convictions to that. He was simply trying to preach the gospel. Nevertheless, he was uh, not altogether popular with some of those other groups. The Massachusetts clergyman convened and issued a resolution condemning revivals, declaring them erroneous in doctrine and disorderly in practice. So, <laughs> um, still didn't, didn't stop a lot of good things happening, though, nevertheless, in and around that state. Many disruptions ensued. New churches were formed, you know, as, as some would break away from another church where there was dissension and controversy over these revivals, some would break off and form a new congregation. Uh, pastoral conferences were divided into hostile groups. So again, you know, as wonderful as the Great Awakening is in some respects and other perspectives, it's, it's, it's something of a source of contention and problem. Among the Presbyterians, for example, you have those who favored the Great Awakening. Uh, They were called the New Side, and not surprisingly, those who opposed the Great Awakening were called the Old Side. At the beginning of the Presbyterian disruption in 1745, leaders of both sides were nearly equal. 
But by 1758, there were three times as many on the new side. So it had it had begun to it had won over a number of people to its side. They had begun to side with the the Great Awakening and its uh, measures and so forth. And so revivalism, we can use that as a means to judge that it had gained a firm foothold among the Presbyterians at least. The Great Awakening was well-established in Virginia, a state where the Episcopal Church was also well-established. And you have, of course, uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield, both of them connected directly to the Church of England coming and preaching there. So uh, they were much more comfortable than sometimes they were up even in New England. Whitfield visited Williamsburg, Virginia in 1739 and preached to a large congregation there. Eventually, several of the New Side Presbyterian missionaries came to Virginia, including Samuel Davies. Uh, This Two Sides scenario could be found in almost every denomination. In other words, it wasn't limited only to the Presbyterians. This this kind of arrangement where some liked the Great Awakening, some didn't like the Great Awakening, you could find it in just about every group or movement or denomination going on in the colonies at that time. Now, for us Baptists, let's, let's wake up and notice this, the... Baptists kind of came along later uh, as far as their surge went. <clears throat> it was led by Shubal Stearns and Daniel Marshall, who was Stearns' brother-in-law, married to his sister. And they were known for their church at Sandy Creek, North Carolina. Uh, Shubal Stearns was a fervent and powerful Calvinist preacher. And again, if you remember your uh, American religious history, you know, at least for us Baptists, you've got a couple of streams of influence uh, happening in that era of time. You've got the Sandy Creek folks. You've also got the Charleston movement or the Charleston tradition. Uh, You've got those two groups kind of bringing uh, their own styles, their own unique aspects of of worship and church life, bringing all those things together. And eventually those those streams somewhat merge together. But as, as I learned early on in seminary, you could you, you can usually associate the Charleston tradition with order, orderliness, and you can associate the Sandy Creek tradition with ardor. In other words, experientialism, you know, a little more a little more exuberance, a little more um, passion and, and uh, expression. So order and ardor. Charleston, Sandy Creek, those two groups there. The Baptists were not as well received uh, in terms of the, uh, the Great Awakening as the Presbyterians. Some persecution occurred between 16, uh, excuse me, 1768 and 1770, and some Baptist missionaries were beaten, seized by ruffians, and mocked by being forced to submit to immersions in mud holes. And at least 30 were imprisoned. So again, people were mocking the Baptists, mocking their commitment to believer's baptism uh, by by taking them out to a mud hole and and just running them through the motions of of an immersion and basically mocking them, making fun of them in the whole time. So um, again, terrible time um, for at least some Baptists in this period. Again, you remember back up in our last lecture with Roger Williams, and other Baptists, uh, they were, you know, not in good fellowship with the, the Puritans of that day, largely, because, again, they were not uh, receptive to their particular doctrines, certainly infant baptism, and that continued to be the case for a long time. 
Nevertheless, eventually, as we know, Baptists became a, a dominant denomination in the United States, and a, a status it still enjoys to this day. Uh, an interest in education, sort of changing gears here for a minute, talking about education, particularly theological education, was enlarged after the Great Awakening. Princeton University, in particular, emerged from this period. Where did it come from again? The Log College of the Tenants. Okay, that's where it came from. Uh, it, it just, it's just a movement that grew out of that, just grew out of a desire to teach and train pastors in just a simple, faithful way uh, because of the constant need for pastors that there's going to be when the church is growing and enlarging. You're going to constantly need new men to serve and, and to go out and plant and, and so forth, and so that's, that's what that was all about. You just can't get away from that constant need. If you ever abandon the training of pastors, you're going to stifle the growth unknowingly. Now, there were other places, of course, that were established to help train ministers. We've already talked about up in... Um, uh, in our last lecture, we've talked about, of course, Harvard uh, was you know, heavily involved in the training of pastors early on in its existence. Other institutions like Princeton, of course, were Dartmouth, Brown, University of Pennsylvania, and so on. These all were heavily involved in training ministers primarily in their first years. Whitfield's more than 30 years of preaching helped to maintain and extend the influence of the Great Awakening. Although Edwards is often called the father of the Great Awakening, Whitfield's influence, of course, cannot be ignored. The Great Awakening died out a few years uh, after a few years in New England, but its effects continued in the South until Whitfield died in 1770. Before the Great Awakening, denominational lines were drawn very sharply. There was very distinct boundaries between denominations. It was very clear who believed what, and, and they usually you know, remained very easily separate from one another, with each group being identified by specific theological or doctrinal convictions, uh, with, for example, the Presbyterians defending the teachings of Westminster, the Congregationalists adhering to Puritan principles, Baptists, of course, holding unswervingly to believers' baptism, and so forth. After the Great Awakening, however, denominational distinctions were somewhat less important. doesn't mean they're unimportant, but they're not as much the focus. The question of whether or not one was a converted Christian was of greater importance than had been previously considered. All right, I want to read again from Weber for just a moment. He's talking here about uh, preaching of the Great Awakening. Only a superficial mind would look upon Jonathan Edwards as a revivalist and nothing more. He was a theologian and a metaphysician of exceptional influence, and the form of Calvinism that he professed and the theology of Samuel Hopkins left their mark upon theological thought in America. George Whitfield was a great preacher, but he was not a theologian of the first rank, yet in his own way he influenced American preaching. Men learned from his example that it is possible to preach without a manuscript, and we'll see that when we talk about Whitfield in just a few moments. A free oratorical style of preaching became popular in some places, as well as direct appeals to the emotions and a demand that men break completely with worldly habits and make an instant surrender of their lives to the Savior. Polemical sermons against the Baptists, the Quakers, the Roman Catholics became less popular, and there was more of an ethical note in the average sermon than there had been in the past. So, again, moving away from 
heavy focus on doctrine and theology, again, not abandoning it by any means, but moving away from, from heavy influence on those things, moving toward uh, a greater uh, call to repentance, call to faithfulness, call to holiness among uh, the people of the church, and certainly also using those sermons to proclaim the gospel to the lost who would hear whether they were in attendance in a church service or whether they were somewhere else. Let's look briefly at some other factors uh, that were going on. Many of the preachers of this period possessed a high-quality education, especially the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists. Uh, We've talked about them. Remember that the earliest of these, they actually were trained in England or elsewhere in Europe, and they came over and already trained, already ready to serve. And uh, so... That was true of the earliest ones, and then the later ones either received training at home or at the hands of these already trained individuals. And by the way, that's that's a a habit that you find happening throughout uh, early religious history in America and certainly uh, in England. Uh, Whenever you have a young person in a village uh, who shows the aptitude for, for learning, uh, whether he's going to be in the ministry or not, but especially if he is, then many times he'll go and spend some time living with uh, the, the preacher, the vicar, the priest, whoever it is uh, there in the village, and just spend some time with either living with him or, or visiting him on a regular basis, learning the classics, learning just basic educational materials, so that when he does go to school, he'll be ready and he won't be behind, won't be behind the other students uh, who are already starting. So that's very common practice. Uh, it was certainly true in the time of the early 18th century here in the colonies. Many clergymen from Britain came to America and preached and pastored. So, again, early on, even though you had some who were trained over there and then came here to start new lives or to escape persecution or just simply could no longer deal with the uh, constraints of of religious life in England, whatever it was, uh, they came over here and and some of them went ahead and, and began to serve. And once some had... Often there were many more who followed. For example, within a decade, at least 65 such men came to Massachusetts alone. So within 10 years, you had a number of men uh, who came over simply uh, to preach and pastor. Men who'd already been trained, men who had already been through uh, those uh, qualifying times and came over here ready to serve, ready to be involved in preaching and serving in churches. Harvard, Yale, Brown, Princeton, so forth, began humbly, but they provided quality instruction for their students. It's encouraging to know that even though they did begin very humbly and, and were just, you know, small institutions, you know, compared to what they are now, you know, huge, monstrous uh, examples of academic, um, you know, status in America. Nevertheless, uh, when they began, of course, they were largely involved in just training and teaching students who were looking toward the ministry. Some clergymen taught young men in their homes. We just said that. Here's another one, another person we need to give a little bit of attention to, a man by the name of Joseph Bellamy. He was a learned theologian and a forceful preacher. Um, He began the school year by giving the young men questions covering the whole field of theology. So, he was one of these men who took in students into his home. 
uh, whether it was just a handful or a few more, he took in students into his home, and, and his whole purpose was to, to teach and train them and get them ready for the ministry. And, and he would start by just giving them a whole series of questions right up front about different things related to theology. And, and he didn't just ask them a few questions. He looked at almost the whole gamut of theology. Uh, in fact, as I say in the next line, it was remarkably similar to the type of material covered in today's theological studies. So, I mean, he's looking at everything. He's talking about the, you know, the nature of God and his attributes. He's talking about the nature of man, the nature of sin and salvation and Christ and all of those things. He's covering all those bases in detail. Bellamy also provided a list of books that he intended for his students to read, and he supervised their progress as they read. In other words, as they read, he uh, made sure that they understood what they were reading, helped make, you know, make sure they were comprehending the material, and just sort of helped to nurture them along, guide them along as they were trying to assimilate this material. He often tested his pupils by questioning various doctrines. In other words, he would, he would say, okay, you, you understand this doctrine, this attribute, say the immutability of God, or do you understand this? Now, what if, or what about, he, he, would, he would question them about these particular doctrines to see how well or how fully they understood uh, these doctrines and, and, and how they properly applied and he could see how well they would respond. And if they responded well, then he would uh, try to encourage and reinforce that in them. And if they couldn't answer the question or couldn't answer it accurately, then he would uh, answer it for them and, and move on, watching all the while to make sure that they um, corrected any errors they made along the way. Now, Bellamy aided his students in learning to prepare and preach sermons, too. Uh, under his tutelage, they... Um, learn to, to write their own sermons. They learned to, to preach their own sermons. You know, he, he sat and listened to them as they preached. He was personally there as they were conveying their messages uh, so they would know how best to do it. Now, the Methodist and Baptist preachers, again, we talked a lot largely about Episcopals, we talked about Congregationalists and Presbyterians, but the Methodists and the Baptists, as we know, were more active than these others because they were usually found on the American frontier. Again, sometimes it's hard for us to think about the fact that at this time, you know, little, if anything, has moved past the Mississippi River going westward. Very little has happened at this point, moving westward. Um, while I was in seminary, I served a church near Bardstown, Kentucky, which is right in the heart of our state here. And in the early 19th century, uh, the Roman Catholic Church used Bardstown as what was to be the westernmost outpost for Catholicism in America. Okay, and so at the time, uh, the St. Stephen Cathedral that is still there uh, to this day, was recognized as the westernmost outpost of Catholicism in Kentucky. Uh, so it's, it's remarkable to think now that, you know, that's, that, that was left in the dust years ago uh, as, as a western uh, landmark or, or uh, signpost. Uh, it has moved all the way to the Pacific Ocean now. But so we have to think about that the western frontier uh, for America was, was, again, very formidable, very challenging, very intimidating. 
but you had many people who were doing that, trying to, to see what America held as far as riches for, for land and agriculture and, and so forth. And so you have Methodists and Baptists who were uh, trying to reach out to these outposts of people planted all over these uh, states that were moving west, moving even toward and ultimately beyond the Mississippi River trying to reach out to them. The American frontier was hard. It was hard to get supplies. Sometimes it was hard to get the things they needed to be able to survive. And, and we see that even more pronounced when we get to the Second Great Awakening around the turn of the 19th century. Uh, again, that's one of the reasons for uh, a revival movement that was so centered on experience and emotion and feeling is because these people, um, again, trying to fight all of the dangers and difficulties of the of the American frontier, they needed encouragement. They needed support, and uh, they were uh, facing a whole different series of challenges than those who'd gone before them in a lot of ways. Again, we'll talk about that when we get there in our lectures next week. Now, many of these young Baptist and Methodist preachers, again, we know a lot of them were, were circuit riding, they were itinerant, they were moving around, they carried theological books with them, and they studied as they journeyed. Uh, they Sometimes they would be on horseback riding, and they, they'd be reading as they went. They'd be studying some theological book or, or treatise, uh, trying to understand more deeply uh, the things of God. So they were studying often as they were moving from place to place. Often a younger man would accompany an older man so that the more seasoned preacher could supervise and train up the one who was younger. Of course, that often made for a very good partnership uh, because the younger man could help the older man with the things he needed help with, and the older man's wisdom and judgment and uh, theological and preaching knowledge would be able to help the younger man who still didn't have a lot of those gifts yet, or at least not fully developed in his life. Now, we are just about to embark on looking at the, the three preachers of 18th century America, Jonathan Edwards, uh, and then John Wesley and George Whitfield. But before we do, I want to uh, do another little plug for another resource that is really helpful. This is a, a, a collection of sermons that I used when I took a, an American preaching seminar in my doctoral work at seminary. This is uh, Sermons That Shaped America, Reformed Preaching from 1630 to 2001, edited by William Barker and Samuel Logan. Uh, this is a wonderful collection of sermons, and again, they're Reformed in nature. They, they, they are very Calvinistic, uh, going all the way from people like John Cotton and John Winthrop to Cotton Mather and Jonathan Edwards, Gilbert Tennant, whom we've just mentioned tonight, moving ahead into Archibald Alexander, Asahel Nettleton, who we'll look at uh, in a few days, uh, moving forward to Gearhardus Voss, uh, J. Gresham Machen, Francis Schaeffer, even to Timothy Keller. Uh, so all of them uh, appear in this collection of sermons that have helped to shape uh, and, ref and, and refine our, our country. So I encourage you to, to look at that collection, perhaps even acquire it for yourself. It's very good, very useful, very helpful. Uh, and in fact, I think it's very enjoyable to go back and see some of those really early sermons and how they really did have a lot of influence, not only in their immediate context, but ultimately uh, even upon future generations of Americans and even upon us as you look at that in that way. So I want to draw this lecture to a close and uh, allow you the opportunity to ask any questions that you have at this point regarding just the history of uh, 18th century America and the Great Awakening and the preaching that was taking place during this time. 
Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.